This is Dance Talk Radio brought to you by PhiladelphiaDance.org, your one-stop spot for everything dance in Philly. I am your host, Charles Tyson Jr. And today I am thrilled and blessed and tickled to have our guest. She is so many things. She is a prolific dancer and a dance advocate and a mover and a shaker. Danielle Karika is in the house. Hi, Danielle. How are you? Hi, hi. I'm good. I'm good. How are you, friend? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I've been, uh, you've been on my list for a minute. <laughs> and I'm like, now's the time. <laughs> Charles, do you realize you were my, like, one of my first, first introductions to Philadelphia? Do you realize that? Really? I don't know if you remember this, but I was just graduating college and I went to school in Richmond, Virginia, at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh-huh. And when I realized that I would be moving to Philly to, um, two uh, uh, classmates of mine who were like a year younger than me, um, Mel and Felix, Felix Cruz. Yes. I remember Mel's last name. For some reason, it's like evading me right now. But they, I think, either went to school with you at one point or knew you via like past. And they were like, the person to connect with in Philly is Charles. And I remember I like wrote you an email like before I had ever met you. It was just like, I'm moving to the city. I don't know anything. But if you happen to like cross paths with me, like this is who I am. You know, I look forward to meeting you. And you like gave me some information about just like no two things. Like, you know, and then I ended up working at Dance Up. And I think we properly met for the first time at Dance Up. But like you gave me like info, like had never met me but was like, this is, you know, there's a Market Frankfurt line, there's a Broad Street line, you're probably going to be in Center City a lot. Like, just gave me, like, really helpful stuff. Oh, wow. I never met, so thank you for being a really friendly person (laughs) in a new city. Definitely welcome. Wow. I don't, but I'm, 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 I mean, I'm not surprised that I did that, because that would, that would be the answer to the question, but... (laughs) Well, it was super helpful. It definitely gave me some landmarks the first time I like pulled up on a Greyhound in Philly. To oh, I'm so glad. Oh, because well, now I feel partially uh, responsible for all the wonderful things you've done in the city work. Yay, go <laughs> us! Take a piece of the pie. That's right. <laughs> um, I remember the moment I knew I loved you. <laughs> we were at it was a new edge residency performance at the CEC. Mm. Um oh my god, his name is escaping me. Um the show was it was like about a scientist and then he fell in love with a clown. Marcel Foster. Marcel, Marcel. Yes. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And Ooh, I remember in that you were sitting in front of me I think with Juma and <laughs> right <laughs> and there was like that moment where like the two characters finally kissed and it was like it was one of those things like if they don't i'm gonna be mad <laughs> and you were like yes like before i could i was like yeah okay me and her we cool <laughs> that's so amazing oh wow what a like Oh, you just like flashed me right back to that time period. Yes, Marcel Williams Foster, what a lovely and amazing human who's now in Atlanta, I believe. Okay. Um, but Marcel at the time was doing a lot of, uh, I think was 
was cross-pollinating between their like dance theater performance practice styles and their, I believe it was like sociology and some other form of science that they were also studying and like a full practitioner of. And I believe that they had, they had a working, they had a, a working practice that was inhabiting the, the sort of persona of like a Jane Goodall. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there was another sign, another archetype like avatar. And I forget who that was because it was a bit of a while ago. But it was so amazing because I had been a part of other iterations with Marcel in practices where we had practiced other types of like character development. So uh-huh. it was really interesting because I think that was the first time I saw Marcel's work before like working with Marcel. But I just oh, okay. remember I was so like, I was so excited for the tension that, that they were building in the piece so that when that kiss finally happened, I, I, right, I was like, yeah, finally, right. like, thank you. But I think I was also just like really young and really excited to see the ways in which like real time art has a way of like getting to like the nut of things and like the visceral response that yes. I think we take for granted when we watch like televised entertainment, like how we can have those moments like in a couch by ourselves. But there's right. something happen there's something that happens, at least for me, when I'm in a room of other people all taking it in in real time. And so when something exciting happens and you do this, the thing that outside of like the social norm where like you vocalize your excitement or like your anticipation right. becomes like physicalized, like that's really, really exciting. That to me is a, um, a moniker of like really exciting art. So. Yeah. Cause he, they built that tension. Cause I had seen the show. I had ushered the show the first night or maybe I ushered both nights but anyway I saw it more than once and the second time I saw it I still had that like are they going to do it are they going to do it I know they are but maybe they're not maybe it's going to be different tonight I don't know ah (laughs) yeah it's so exciting and also too like I don't know like after four years of being in a in a a university dance program and before that living in you know, a place like Memphis, Tennessee, which is amazing, but also like very conservative and Bible Belt in the South. And so to come to Philly and be in, be entrenched in not just like the dance world and the performance, performance art, but like to be entrenched in a place where things like burlesque and drag and all of that was like holding, holding weight, holding water at least that's how it felt, you know, with like um, concert stage dance and like uh, modern modern dance and postmodern dance and all of the experiment experimentation that was happening in Philly. Philly like opened me up to like process work. Like that was the first time that I had been a part of not just rehearsal processes or like the choreographer was giving you the steps, but like to, to be a part of a process where you have to mm. go through a series of actions, tested strategies, failed strategies to come up with either movement modalities or to come up with um you know the meat that would be the impetus for the work to come like that was such a like thing like for me coming to philly so yeah getting to go and see all of the work and like the residencies that aren't here anymore you talk about that new edge i know Um, who is the wonderful lady who had her space on sansom um susan has Susan Hess. Yes. And now, um, we still have like Terry Fox and PDP. And I think right. like, I think Ken and Ball is also doing really wonderful work in terms of like yes. bringing, you know, bringing all types of folks to stages, but also really ensuring that like our marginalized and our BIPOC artists who sometimes 
get lost in the fray or making sure they get their their time and their production attention as well. So I know things are like we're in that era of like the new coming in and filling in I think the holes of what we've lost via funding cuts of funding or or just access. But um that was a really exciting time. Two thousand nine was a really exciting time to show up in filling. It really was. <laughs> and it's crazy because you know, like I said, I couldn't remember Marcel's name. And I was looking up the New Edge residency in 2009 in anticipation of bringing this up to you today. And like, I couldn't find any information about the New Edge. And it's like, why not? Because so many amazing artists, you know, were, went through that residency program. Like Meredith Rainey was the only name that like consistently came up. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think when I think about and Jamil, yeah. So I was thinking like, there's Jamil, there was like Shannon Murphy, there's mm-hmm. uh, Siobhan Norris. Yeah, Les Rivera, I think had had a one probably. I know maybe. Les was in Siobhan's work. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was it was Les Siobhan, It was Les Juma and uh, uh, Kamal. Kamal. Um, also Mina Estrada, who's not yep. based out of Philly anymore. I just, I just, when I came, there was so many things happening. I mean, there was also, uh, I mean, Headlong, who is still in, in the community, Headlong had things, um, you know, yeah, there's just, there's just really a lot of wonderful things happening. But also I think you had organizations like Dance Up, mm-hmm. such a unicorn period of time and such a like, wonderful i'm so grateful for that and i and i think sometimes like when i think about dance up so dance up for those who probably are not familiar with that title so there was an organization in philadelphia from before i moved to philly i think they started in like 2007 or 2008 i could be that wrong sounds right um but i got i got here in 2009 and through jamil kosoko kosako mm-hmm. Um, who at the time was a program associate for the organization. He brought me in as an intern. He and I met dancing for uh, Juma Tatu Po, McKinney Po. And um, he was like, you know, I work for this nonprofit and we serve the professional dance community, um, but we also need interns. And would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I went and it blew my mind because it was run by Lois Welk, who is this, Yes. Goddess of arts, strategic thinking, arts, um, future brainstorming and dreaming, like just a really, really amazing human being who has been, who has just been a part of so many evolutions of how we as artists find, make space for ourselves, get ourselves funded and maintain sustainable structures. I think that's like, those are like some of like the main points that I definitely learned under my time working with Lois. But anyway, Dance Up was this Dance USA Philadelphia, which was a branch of the national organization still in existence, Dance USA, which is based out of Washington, DC. At the time of my entering into Philly, Dance USA had about four or five branches across the country. There was a Dance NYC, a Dance DC, in addition to the national office, Dance Up, I think there was a Dance Chicago and maybe like one other. And over the time, in the time that I would be a Dance Up, we would see all of those branches minimize or close. And it would get to the point that it was just Dance Up, Dance USA, Philadelphia, I think Dance NYC, and then the national organization in DC. 
And so the Dance Up organization, which um, the way it came to be in Philadelphia, little cliff notes um, history, is that <laughs> there was a uh, there was like a community call, I think, for a dance service organization at a time where you had organizations like PenPat, which was like the Performing Arts on Tour organization. Um, there's a few others that I'm like totally blanking on their names, but there were a series of like state level funding as well as national level funding that was really specific to funding only dance, which is something that is really not common today. Now dancers are having to compete for funding inside of inside of granted organizations that are funding the whole spectrum of arts right. creation, which is yeah. making it more competitive and harder to get money that was already hard to get. Right. At this time, dance was a bit more... Um, there was a bit more individualism inside of what was being granted. Like music had its own stuff, dance had its own stuff, you know, visual art had its own stuff, so on and so forth. And um, Philadelphia realized that they needed a, a central place for dance, dance organizations, dance companies, dance artists to be able to receive additional support. Um, and so a group of people got together, I believe like folks like Terry Fox, um, maybe even Terry Shockley, uh, I believe Amy Smith, um, a few others, and and there there are definitely more people than I am remembering. But like they got together and helped create this like coalition of folks who ended up um, somehow working with the William Penn, and the William Penn ended up giving um, a majority of funding along with the Dance USA national organization to create the entity that became Dance USA Philadelphia. And Lois Welk was brought on as the director. Through. She has a history of her dance professional life in Corning. Um, she also uh, began working with a very young Arnie Zane and Bill T. Jones when they were super young and super yes. green. Um, and she started the New York Dance Asylum, which was a space for dancers to practice their different, you know, dance styles, dance modalities. I know Lois has a deep background in modern, postmodern improvisation, and she and Arnie and Bill T did a lot of foundational work that would end up becoming a lot of the foundational practices that would go into the work with Arnie and Bill to eventually create Bill T's company. Um, and she would also go on to be um, not just a, a choreographer, but a presenter. She's um, worked in... Uh, places where she helped manage um, venues that only produced music. And then she went on to support dance companies and all of that work um, with like the New York State Dance Force and all of that um, would end up being um, some of her background before she came to Philadelphia. And then once she got to Philadelphia, she was really integral in helping um, the city not just understand that we had a rich and diverse ecosystem of dance practitioners, dance mm. makers, um, dance presenters, but also that as long as we could receive flat access with as little gatekeeping as possible to like the tools we needed, the Philadelphia dance community was just as competitive as any other dance community. Because I think being a small city, a big, um, a big urban small city next to a big urban city like a New York, you know, right. and not far away from other like small major cities. Um, there's a lot of a sense of competition around like how, who are we bringing into the city to see our dance? And then like, who are, how are we maintaining and keeping audiences? And so dance up was in the practice of trying to make sure that we were keeping all channels open on networking 
con- continuously going. Lois was always um, crafting and thinking about, and, and she leaned on us as a staff as well to help her think about ways in which we could ensure that dance artists, dance makers, dance presenters were getting all that they needed to do their jobs well and with little like pushback as possible and as much funding as they could get access to. That was an amazing time. Sadly, Dance Up had to close its doors. I believe it was 2012 or 2013. Yeah. Um, our funding, um, one of our main funders was a good chunk of our funding, which is why it's important to diversify your funding. Um, yeah. You never want to be beholden to, to one group. But our, our doors were closed in 2012, and it did like a really sweet sunset, and um, we handed off what we could of the vestiges of our programs and our, and our, um, and just our, what, what tools we could still give back to the community. We gave back to some folks who took care of it and stewarded it until it kind of like sunset it out. Um, and so it doesn't exist anymore, but those five to six years were like the most amazing, informative, uh, it was just such an important time for me because as I was still, figuring out who I was as a dancer, who I was as an artist, I was getting all of this information around like the business of dance and the, the, the many conversations around like, how are we talking about dance? Who, who's getting to tell whose history when we teach and, and remount dances? Um, how are we funding it? How are we sustainably maintaining these organizations? Um, and a lot of those haven't been answered, but there were so many interesting strategies and uh, concepts that were being considered and talked through and dreamt about. Um, and I'm curious what what Philly would be like if Dance Up was still around. But mm. yeah, it was a really really great time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that's you know I when I think of you, I don't just think of you as a performer. I always think of you as being a part of. Uh, the movement within dance advocacy and administration. You're always like either in the room where it happens or trying to get folks in the room where it happens. Um, Where are you at with, with that these days? Sure. Um, You know, I feel very blessed in, but I, I sometimes feel like I wasn't always there. But I feel like in the times that I got to be there, it was because someone with power was like, you need to be in here and you should know what's happening and hearing. And I feel like we're really blessed in that the dance world for all of its like shit, you know, and all of its things, excuse my language. Um, there are people, okay. <laughs> there, there, are, there are definitely people who I think of, an, of a generation before us who are definitely paying attention and making sure that like the next generation is there to at least bear witness. If not get to like put forth certain ideas, I think, you know, when you look at the like governance and the business of non-profitcy, which is how most organizations that are dance specific tend to like function as um, there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of nonsense that gets in the way of the simple doing of making the art. And I think that because of that bureaucracy, um, it, it's, it's easy for us to like get lost in the sauce. Yep. And so um if and when I do have the privilege and the ability to be in spaces, um, I think I always bring it back to like 
in my experience and the way I've been living and breathing and, and getting to participate in this thing called dance, there's a lot of manifesting and a lot of hustling that has to happen. And so mm. I know that that's what I have to do. I have a sense that the majority of the folks who are doing it are also mitigating and managing all of these other shit. And so I think for me, if I know that for myself, I'm looking for all of the, I'm looking for access to all the things that make it possible, that make it efficient and make it doable. And I want to make sure other people have that too. So all of my um, intention has always been from a place of like, I want others to have whatever I might happen to find access to. Cause I understood like I was in positions of privilege. Like once I understood the space that dance up had the, the like the, the, the ability that dance up had to like offer folks more info and more access. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be that bridge if I could. Right. If I were, if I were that privileged. Um, and so now, um, so I was my last sort of, uh, like dance specific job was when I was working at Headlong in their incubated artist program, helping to manage. Um, they are were or are I'm not sure if they still are, but they at the time had this really wonderful program in which um, women, trans, and by POC artists were being. Um, held as a fiscally sponsored artists, meaning all of their funding was being kept in safekeeping via headlong and headlong would also allow them to use their 501c3 to apply for funding, to um, have a place to send their funding and hold it. And then we would help disperse their funds along, along in parallel with like whatever projects they were doing or whatever they were managing. I would be the admin side of their needs. I would be doing all their payouts. I would be talking them through like their budgets for this grant that they just received and making sure that the funding is being allocated correctly and all of that. And that was really lovely because it, it also opened me up to um, understanding how artists, like even when they get the funding, it's some, it's oftentimes not enough right. and how they're still managing to make like these really important and wonderful works with or without everything that they need. Um, and so for me, it's like, if I can, if I can create just a little bit more space for you to just do the simple art of doing the work, then I will have done something of necessity and importance. And that feels, that for me selfishly feels really good. Um, mm -hmm. and so, uh, I have since 2021, no, 2022 last year, been only doing um, making and performing as a performance artist. Um, I haven't worked in a, in a nonprofit in a while, but I still pay attention to um, what's happening in terms of like city governance. I think it's really important. We have to look at the trends and pay attention to not just how often, but when and why the city or the state determines it's necessary to cut funding or to like minimize funding and, and how long it takes to restore that funding. So yes, something like the Philadelphia Culture Fund losing a lot of its funding due to the pandemic. But once yeah. the city starts to like come back to its um, stasis of how it functions and how it operates and the city is still trying to pull in tourism, why have we not restored the funding to the Philadelphia Culture Fund? And if not, why have we not bolstered the funding to the Philadelphia Culture Fund? You know, or um, when I look at other organizations that are 
having to fold or organizations that are having to shift, shift and minimize in order to like survive, like what is happening to ensure that our ecosystem isn't starting to um, dwindle? Like what can we do, right? And so um, protest, mm. uh, paying attention to city council meetings, mm-hmm. um, trying to uh, continue to support our local artists, um, going to see shows when I can, uh, all of that is a form of advocacy that feels that feels manageable. I think we all have to determine for ourselves what's possible, right? Like not every like we don't always have the ability to go see a show or to get to where the show is or money or whatever, like you name it, right? But when we can, how we can to continue to support local artists so that they have audiences to play with, to test with, and to advocate for to advocate for them so that they can get other opportunities in other places too. So I, I look at I look at advocacy as like an everyday being more so than like something I gotta do in a moment of crisis or reactionary. I'm, I hope I hope that it continues to just be a way of being for me. Work, work. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that um, you are focusing more on the performance side of things. Um, which, yay. <laughs> the last thing I saw you in, you were in Gunnar Montana's uh, production of Bathhouse. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that show was everything. It was, right? It was It was literally everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you literally got everything. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and that was an exciting uh production for me to see for a bunch of reasons. I got to interview Gunner on my other uh, podcast, Full Circle, and, you know, talk about the ins and outs of, you know, the celebration of queerness through the, the filter of, you know, what is the bathhouse? What does it represent? And that was so thorough. What was it like working with Gunner in that Oh, wow. Um, It's always such a really amazing trip to work with Gunner. So I worked with Gunner for the first time in 2019. I was a part of his production called Basement. And Basement was this really like dark, heavy um, piece about, you know, this, this person who had experienced extreme like violent loss. And rather than how some folks, you know, deal with that, their way to deal with that was to continue murdering and killing people. It was terrible, but it was really exciting in that. Um, he goes I, there, I, doesn't he? He does, he does. But it was exciting for me as an artist because I've always secretly wanted to be a stunt woman. Like I grew up on Jackie Chan movies and like obsessing over like actresses like Michelle Yeoh and like Lucy Lawless. Like I always wanted to, cause I also was an athlete before I was a dancer and I had to stop being an athlete in order to like take on serious dance training. I'm doing air quotes for someone who's listening to this. Um, <laughs> and so I, my first love to movement was the physicality and the like athleticism of movement. And I didn't understand when I was watching like the fight choreography that I was seeing movement choreography. Like I was already, you know, connected to it, but I didn't understand. But my entry point to movement exploration and excitement was definitely like action films and, and like fight sequences. And so, um, 
getting to work with Gunner kind of like brought that dream of full circle because Gunner's work is so physical. I think in Bathhouse, what you saw was a lot more, a, a lot more attention paid to um, movement fluidity, um, to the interpersonal connections that were happening in the piece. I think, whereas in Bathhouse, it was like, I'm sorry, in Basement, it was way more physical, way, like a lot more fight choreography, a lot more of me having to climb things and like grapple with things, which I also love to um, boulder and rock climb. So that was also a, a skill set that I got to bring in too. So all that to say that like working with Gunner, I think he hones in on like what your what your like geek out like favorite things are and he finds a way to like amplify it inside the work in a way that um helps assist the narrative or assist the environment because he creates these wonderful immersive environments in which like as an audience member you're like dropped right in it like you're inside of it um so it's always really wonderful to work with him because i think i think he understands the like it's not that I'm an adrenaline junkie, but I think he understands that I really, really get excited at the challenge of like, how far can I push myself? But also, um, I can fucking do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it for like, four, I'm going to do it 45 times in a row. Like, right. For four months. Right. Four months, I'm going to be a pro, you know, and it's just, it's so exciting as, as a freelance dancer, you know, I've not had the privilege of being a part of a dance company in which like I'm contracted I'm there for like years and years and years. I mean, I've danced for people for long periods of time, but I've never been a part of like a, a typical, like a traditional like dance company kind of thing. And so right. it's really exciting to, and for like four or five months of my life, like really, really, really hone in on training my body and getting it ready for like use in apparatus, use in climbing, use in, you know, jumping really far, use in really just like physically pushing my body in a way that I'm not always asked to in dance. You know, I think, I think my time in Philly as a dancer has been really, really beautiful and that I've really gotten to like stretch how I think about things, how, what are the entry points for like my creation or for my understanding what someone is trying to work and being a conduit for their work and letting it pass through me. And I think with Gunner specifically, it's been really, really exciting to see what passes through me from this very like physical attention to detail, this very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very focused way of, of getting things done. But also, you know, he works with material and he builds sets. And so I'm also getting to like... He's so crafty. That, mother, that motherfucker, listen. <laughs> talent, as a talented man. Um, oh, it's just, just in terms of like his ability to like truly craft environment and space and how it, how, and how it helps you as an artist like drop into the... Like it really helps you tell a story in a way that sometimes I think we forget as artists who are used to just dealing with like the imaginative. Um, he brings in a lot of that imaginative to a, to a, in a tangible way that is I feel very privileged in experiencing. Um, right, because he uses the word immersive. Like you hear the word immersive a lot in 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 dance, mm-hmm. and you know, nine times out of ten, I'm like, I roll my eyes instinctively, but. <laughs> Gunner does actually like put you in the middle of this world, this time, yeah. this place, you know, and and yeah. it's beautiful to see. Yeah, and it's also really exciting to 
come in every day and watch as like the the world gets built around you so like every time we come in or like the next week like something in the space has been like added or something has been something has bloomed literally in the space or like when the set actually gets built built like you get to it's just really interesting to see it all come about um, when did he stop making changes <laughs> show seven show. Oh, the okay. last show. <laughs> That yeah. sounds right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The last show. And we're all here, like, we're all ready for it, you know? Like, of course, as dancers, we're like, oh, God, okay, let me figure this out. But, like, they were always changed instead of just like, oh. That wasn't there yesterday, and I got to climb on that. Okay, Maybe. all right. <laughs> but sometimes it's just like, you know, we forget because we're in it, and we're also, like, the tech crew. So, like, when we're not on stage performing, we're somewhere inside of the space, like, moving something, putting something away, changing into something I else. clocked that, yeah. So, so there's not a lot that we actually see. Like, we don't get to see the piece until, like, months later when we get together as, like, you know, as a show family and, like, sit down and watch it over food, right? So right. Um, when we finally get to see the piece it's like, oh shit. But like when he's making those changes while the piece is happening in real time, even if it's like, oh, okay, let me figure this out. There's something about it that you're like, oh, I see. I see, I see, I see. Okay, okay, okay. I see okay. what you did there. Like, like it's, it's, it's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. You know, <laughs> so it, it works out pretty cool. <laughs> nice. Um, I've noticed over the years that you have a tendency to work with artists that come from a particularly cerebral point of view when it comes to the creation of their work. Um, is that something that you are naturally driven to or did it just work out that way or both? <laughs> um, I would imagine that it's probably a little bit of both. So I, um, I am a, when I when I graduate when I graduated college, I my junior year of college, I was at ACDFA. If you're familiar with that, or any dancers oh, yeah. out there are familiar with that, it's the big um, American College Dance Festival, and um, I was very lucky to be dancing in a piece that had gotten a lot of critical acclaim. That was created by a classmate of mine who was a year ahead of me, a woman named Amid out in front. Amazing. Yes. Girl. Yes, right. Amid, based out of um, Richmond, Virginia. She has a. She's dance one of the people. I was thinking of when I asked the question. Yes, yes. She um, she is now getting, I believe, her MFA from Hollins, but she's based out of Richmond. Amazing mm -hmm. person. Please look her up. Um, she, I was dancing in her piece. And while I was dancing in her piece, I met Charles Anderson, who was based out of Philly at the time. Another one. Uh -huh. Another one. And was teaching at Muhlenberg College at the time. And he would, he had made this incredible piece. And it was like, it was such an amazing, like, you, we all have those moments where we've seen dances where, like, your brain kind of, like, melts out of your ears afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's too many of, like, it's too much beauty and it's too much of, like, everything you've ever dreamed of. But, like, you're seeing it in real time. You're like, what the fuck? So I saw Charles's piece on his students and it was an all-male, all-white men in these, like, gorgeous white outfits doing house and African down. Like, mm -hmm. I, I was just like, what am I seeing? Like, yeah. What's happening? Yeah. And so um, we happened to share a bill with them. And we were at like a cast party after the show. And we were talking with Charles and his dancers. And I was just like, this is amazing. Like, I've never 
seen anything like this before. Like, I didn't know that it was possible to do these on this bodies or like to present it in this way, like just freaking out. And Charles was like, well, you all were wonderful too. You know, that piece is really gorgeous. Um, and we were just talking and Charles had already met Ami. So Charles made the assumption that like Ami, I was getting ready to leave VCU. And he was like, you know, when, you, when you're ready, you give me a call and come to Philly. And I was like, oh, okay. And just like kind of like brushed it off. And I got into my senior year of college and I'm getting to the end of my senior year. And unlike a lot of people who, who I went to school with, I did not have the ability to go to things like, um, you know, Bates or go to ADF or any of those like amazing like summer programs. Like I just right. didn't have the funds to do that. I would go home to Memphis and like work and earn my college tuition for the next year. So like right. I was getting ready to graduate college and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, where am I going to go? And then I remember that conversation with Charles. And so long story short, I moved to Philadelphia because Charles was like, yes, come. And from moving to here, moving here, my only opportunity being Charles, Charles kind of like set me on a path, I feel, because I didn't know that Charles's work was based in so much research, not yeah. just of the black lived experience of our history as enslaved peoples and like the way in which we've since like progressed from there. Um, but he's also like, you know, he's reading James Baldwin. He's, yep. he's reading Octavia E. Butler. Yep. He's utilizing, you know, the talk about prolific work. Like he's utilizing that kind of information and work to help color in narratives and stories that he's already thinking through and thinking about, but also coming, you know, with his lived experience as like a black gay man growing up in the South and in Virginia, and then like going through academia and, and moving from science and math based thinking to like dance based thinking, um, and ending up at ADF and all, and his whole experience. I think Charles set me up to expect a certain amount of process in the work. And so I don't know that I went looking for that, but through dancing with Charles and meeting the people that Charles was working with, I started meeting people. Like that's how I met Adjuma Tatsu McKinney Poe. That's how I met, you know, Karama Butler, who's an amazing dancer now based mm. in California. That's mm -hmm. how I met like Adina Verlisa Mills, who is an amazing dancer. She's um, of the direct lineage of like Mama Kiriyamu and yep. her mother, Yema Mills. Um, her mother know, was my first, one of my first teachers. <laughs> right. And Fundula Technique and like that whole basis of knowledge and understanding. That's how I met, you know, through McKinney, I'm meeting Shannon Murphy, you know, and they're just starting idiosyncrasy productions. And so I'm going into this very, um, anatomy and science based place with like, you know, the thinking of Shannon yes. um, and then getting to meet like a Megan Masaryk who's from, who's thinking about like all distal edges and like how you can eat the space and how your pelvis moves through the space, right? Yep. Working with her. Then meeting like a Kate Watson Wallace because she walked into a dance up and she has a working relationship with a Jamil Kasako and mm -hmm. she's working with, um, you know, minimalism and and she's where and she's thinking through like film and dance and she's bringing like massive groups of bodies into spaces and how does that change and evolve a space and so um i'm also really lucky that because the philadelphia dance community while it is large it's also got a small feel to it and that you know once right. you get to know people you just keep meeting people i've been really lucky in that way um 
that in getting to meet people and talking with people and taking classes, you know, I'm, I'm, I keep coming into connection with people because everyone's thinking about everyone's like trying to like figure out where they fit in. And I think that Philadelphia is super conducive to incubation and to, um, process like a lot of artists like even even the artists that i was working with at dance up like greg holt meg foley gabrielle revlock um you know marcel again mm, yeah. um jamil when he was there um they were all like just really really thinking from multifaceted places about it and there was no way that i wasn't going to be influenced by that and i think i just kept meeting and connecting with people in that way. I also spent a period of time working in the University of the Arts dance department. Mm-hmm. And so I was an admin in the office for the university, for the dance department. And it was really interesting because I was also, you know, hearing how, you know, academia is trying to impart the many ways that dance is, is becoming so multifaceted and how we talk about dance, how we talk about the dancer's body, how we talk about anatomy, how we talk about science and physics and the way that the body actually gets it to do these things that it does and and the ways in which we're trying to let go of certain old tropes of dance, right? Like what what age you should be when you're at your prime and all this bullshit. Right, like, yeah, yeah. It's just really interesting to, to also get to be in rooms where I hear and see that kind of thing. And that also influenced like, the the work and like getting to have long conversations with someone like Tommy Wahid Evans, who is just brilliant. And this was when he was in grad school. I think he's since done with grad school, but like at the time I was working there, he was in grad school and just getting to like talk with him and like chew the fat with him about how he was thinking through things. Like it just, it was amazing. But also, you know, um, I, I, I don't always get to work with amazing people, but I have been blessed to like work alongside them or work for them. And so that right. is also informative. Right. Um, you know, I, I also like started dancing. One of the first dance companies I danced with here was also a company named dance for Nia, which is yes. Antoinette Cal Gilmore. Um, they're amazing. I think they're out in Germantown now. I just worked with them a couple weeks ago with performance. Wonderful. Yeah. And I know she has um, like the second company and she does amazing community work as well, but like, you know, dancing for them and getting to, to, to get into the lineage of, is it Horton technique? Yes. That was her. Yeah. Like how, how she, how she and the, the folks who were coming in as guest artists or as her like um, foundational, like ballet and modern teachers, like, they also were super um, pivotal and important for me and how I was educated about, you know, not just Horton technique, but like the, the ways in which dance is, is a, is like church dance is like a place of spirituality. Dance is a place of healing. Um, I think it was really important for me to like, get that. And, and I also, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I can see now that like, Dancer Nia also fed me in a way that was really hungry because up until coming to Philadelphia, all of my dance training had been from white bodies, my ballet training, my modern training, my improvisation training, um, even my African and my modern, like my jazz dance training. All of that was from white bodies just because of how I was getting access to it from my dance 
program or from my home program in Memphis, right? So when I come to Philly, all of a sudden I'm getting access to black women bodies who are teaching me not just the techniques, but like the history of things. Right. And that so I so needed that. And I don't, I, it didn't really land on me until um, I was doing um, burlesque. I started doing burlesque and I was looking for mentorship because I came into burlesque at a time where burlesque was still pretty niche in Philadelphia. And so that was a part of, was like the, the only show in town. And that was for like a three to four year period. And then like after a while, other shows started popping up and the community grew bigger and more diverse over the past few years. It looks not like what it, the way the community looks now is nothing to what it looked like. Yeah. The burlesque scene in Philly now is like a major component of the entertainment the nightlife industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, hell yes it is. And a lot of clubs owe a lot of money to burlesque in Philadelphia. Please pay us our coins. Well. Um, but I say all that to say, um what was the point I was making? <laughs> the point I'm making is that um I needed I need I needed a certain amount of remembering the intentions behind what I was doing. Cause I think as a dancer, especially as someone who like went to college for dance and came out with a lot of like fear around like missing my prime or like missing the, like the prime optimal time to like your get window. Into- yeah. Went, right. Like this, this obscure window that we're all trying to like catch on a train that's like moving. Right. Like it's just, it's crazy. Um, and it's not real. Um, nope. nope. And so I, I needed I needed all of those things to to help me know that this is a journey, right? Like this is a this this is a long this is a long marathon that we're on here. Not a sprint, um, exactly. Not a sprint. And so um, I, in addition to maintaining a a curiosity and a healthy um, hunger for dance and getting to work with a lot of really wonderful people. I've also been doing this parallel journey of burlesque for the last 13 years since coming out of undergrad. Um, and me, Dad and Font, again, was the person who brought me into burlesque. She brought me to the Troop Peekaboo Review that I auditioned and got into in 2009. Yep. And um, I was with them up until 2021. Um, and so, oh, you just left. Okay. mm -hmm. So that has been, that was a really, really important and amazing experience because everything I know about burlesque was from joining the troop and being mentored inside of that troop by, um, really talented and wonderful people who I grew up with. We, you know, we all matured and evolved together. Um, and also I got to see the industry of burlesque, not just locally but nationally grow into this like whole ass industry that is now a really really important and pivotal part of not just nightlife entertainment but of the cultural zeitgeist like it's really is really out here like influencing things like you're seeing you know burlesque derived entertainment you know showing up in movies and showing up in television shows and not just for historical context but just also like i saw i'm a, i'm from memphis and the memphis grizzlies mascot the other day like took off all of its clothes and twerked in front of its audience and i was like if that wasn't a person dressed in a grizzly outfit that would be burlesque which uh-huh. we would be up in arms about right like it just it's amazing to me how 
depending on the environment and the people and who's doing it, how certain things go from being criminal and being problematic to being like wholesome family fun. And right, so right, right. Um, I, I am, um, you know, figuring out what my place is in, is in all of that. I think the pandemic had a lot of really interesting effects on me. I was in New York for a burlesque pageant when the pandemic happened, mm. when it like popped off, like that week of like March 12th through the 15th, I was in New York. And I mm. remember it was like so crazy because we were all there for this really important, amazing opportunity, which was it was the first all by POC burlesque pageant happening ever. And it was being produced and run by the, the incredible Pearl Noir, who um, was by far one of my burlesque in inspirations, like especially starting as burlesque. She was like the only black performer that I was aware of until I became more knowledgeable and educated in burlesque and got to travel more and meet other black burlesque performers. But she was by far like, like she was the, the mold, you know? And so it was really exciting and fulfilling to get to be a part of that but I was also in the middle of something that the world had never experienced before mm. and it, there was so much we didn't know and it felt so surreal to like be taking my clothes off and being sexy at a time where like I was being told that people were dying and people were you right. know amassing this like virus that like we had no sense of what it was or like what the effects were and I'm living far away from my family and everyone in my family's older, minus my little, my younger brother. Um, and they all are essential workers. And so it just, it was just, it just like made me really have to pause and wonder like, what is the fucking point? Um, and there of course is a point, right? Like right. there's all that we're getting at. Personally, there's the opportunity to engage with other people. There's the, the evolution and growth of self that I've gotten from it. But um, it definitely made me have to stop and wonder about, you know, the fat and the, 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 the proverbial fat, the like the, right. the unnecessary and the antics and all the things that come with being a performer and being within industries of capitalism and all of that stuff. And so um, I have not done, so I also had a personal life um I don't know what you would call it happened, but like my dad was diagnosed with cancer last year. Mm, and sorry. That's okay. He's doing really well. Um, I, but I went home for like four months and just like stopped performing and like took care, helped take care of my dad, helped, you know, with the, the family household and like really just like pulled back. Um, I also, I just needed that like space. And so since coming back to Philly, um, I came back in February and towards the middle end of February. Um, I haven't done any burlesque yet. Um, and it, I am giving myself the time I need to like take, take stock of everything, take stock of like all of my experiences, take stock of, of, um, of what, of what it is I think I need and I'm still growing into before I go back to burlesque. Like, and, and that could, that could happen at the second half of this year that could happen five years from now. I have no right. time frame on it and I'm really okay with that, but I just, I need, I need some time and some space to like figure out um, what I'm trying to say with burlesque, because I think I've grown past the, 
and not and this is by not this is by no means to say that this is what people are doing when they do burlesque. Just for me, like I think I I have grown past the the surface level of like the sexiness and the fun and the the um the self expression and all of that. Like I've definitely gotten those things, but like I'm I'm looking for something else, and I and I don't know that I've been getting it from burlesque. It's not feeding me in that way. Mm or in the last in the last few years that I've been doing it I also feel like my creative well is dry um, and so mm-hmm. I've, I've gone back to class I've been taking some dance classes across like Philly and in Jersey because I live in Jersey now I'm right across the bridge in South oh, Jersey oh where at? yeah I'm in Oakland New Jersey now okay I'm in Seoul oh hello I'm still learning so I'll find out <laughs> where that is <laughs> um, <Me too. laughs> but I gotta, I gotta figure some things out. I gotta figure out what it is I want. I gotta figure out I, what I do know is I want to grow. Mm. I want, um, I want to con- continually be working on my body's ability to do things. You know, technique again for those listening. Air quotes technique and <laughs> um, and also like I'm, I'm hungry for. I'm just hungry for teachers and mentorship. I feel like I've been in a position of leadership in which people have been looking to me for a certain amount of knowledge, which I feel very privileged about, but I'm, I'm now hungry to be a student again and just to like, just get some information. And, and there are people that I am still dancing with and for like, um, and I'm, and I'm definitely getting a lot out of those process, but in terms of like doing burlesque, I need a, I need a minute. I got to figure out some things. So. That's fair. Yeah, one thing I I did notice uh, with Peekaboo Review was, you know, years and years ago when I first discovered Peekaboo Review, it was a part of the Fringe Festival, and you know there were performances at like the at midnight in the Fringe Bar, and it was very. Um, let's see, how can I put this? Um, DIY feeling like it was very much like I feel like taking my clothes off in public and it's midnight in this space that there's 12 people and you know I don't know how to dance but that's okay let me put this this emo track on and and this is what it's going you're drunk it doesn't matter and so you know it was cute for what it was you know but then I didn't hear from it for a while and then peekaboo review came back and you know i knew who you were at the time and i knew who ami was and i noticed like oh they got like dancer dancers you know and then live music and the whole thing was just elevated and i was like this is what it's supposed to be and then didn't y'all go on america's got talent did i make that up Uh, no you didn't make that up and i am here to to make the psa that don't nobody ever fucking do america's got talent because it is a scam and I would never take part in reality TV again. Um, but what I will say is this. So I think, I think you're, um, you're putting two things together. So Peekaboo Review definitely used to participate in the late night cabaret, which was like yes. the, the second French festival to the French festival. Yes. And that is the, um, 
that is something that was the brainchild of Scott Johnston, who is Count Scotchula of Peekaboo Review. He is one of the founding members of Peekaboo. He's been in Peekaboo since its inception, since it started at the five spot back in Old City before it burnt down. Oh my um, God, the five spot. Yeah. So Peekaboo Review started in like 1998 or 1999, and they That's were right. based out of um, a small club in Old City that no longer exists called the five spot. And when the five spot burnt down, that was like Peekaboo's like home venue. And so they, they for a while would like move from venue to venue. They performed in um, the, one of the owners of Peekaboo had like a firehouse that was like uh, repurposed into like a living space. And so they had a show in there and then they moved, they had a show at the Trocadero, which is no longer in existence. And that's one of our mm. original like burlesque houses in, in Philadelphia, like historically. Um, so I consider myself incredibly privileged and blessed to have gotten to perform on that stage, but they moved around in a lot of places. They had their big like benefit show for the five spot at the Trocadero. And that began Peekaboo's performing in a sort of roving venue tradition in which you'll, you now find Peekaboo at like World Cafe Live, um, maybe theaters out in Delaware. You might see them in New York. You might see them, um, in places in Jersey and along up and down the East Coast. Um, in addition to them getting into like national festivals or performing at BHOF, which is like the big annual burlesque hall of fame, um, which is a fundraiser for the museum that's in Vegas, but also it's the national, the international crowning of the Miss Exotic World or um, Mix Exotic World. This is the first year that um, the the winners are genderless and they're going in a more like um, gender free title. Word. So both um all genders are participating in all categories and then depending on who wins they'll determine what their title like what their prefix title is which is really exciting um but uh all that to say during french festival the late night cabaret would happen and that is where it would not just be peekaboo but it would be an open stage so scott would invite people who maybe have seen burlesque or seen late night entertainment and want to give it a try and it's low stakes and yes, everybody's drunk. So you probably saw a little bit of peekaboo, but also just like your Joe off the street who was getting yep. their kicks in and like wanted to try out a little bit of that. And so there's something now called burlesque and beyond. So burlesque and beyond happens in September at like the beginning of fringe festival. And it's the only all free burlesque festival that happens in the country and it happens right here. This is another child of Scott Johnson, another brainchild of Scott Johnston. And so he and other local performers who he's in partnership with help to create about three or four nights of performances with both international and nationally renowned burlesque performers alongside local performers in shows that happen like a Thursday through a Saturday or a Thursday through Sunday. Oftentimes there's like one or two burlesque classes that are happening with performers who have just traveled in for the, for the performance. So that's a great way to see burlesque. The shows are, um, are free. Uh, so please come and tip the performers. Uh, that's a great, and that's also a great way to see performers from other parts of the world. In addition to like Philadelphia, in addition to Philadelphia local performers. Um, but then the Peekaboo Review itself is still a performing entity um, that you can see all over the East Coast. Um, and they, uh, I don't think they have the band anymore, the STO, the Striptease Orchestra, but they're still creating like massive group numbers. And um, they have, each performer is also a, a solo performing artist, which is how I got my start as a solo performing artist was getting to do solos in our shows. Whose um, name was? Whose name? Your name. 
Oh, my name as a burlesque performer is Sophie Sucre. Yes. Um, also, also uh, pronounced Sucre, which I believe is the French pronunciation. Yes. I am definitely American in the sense that like, I chose a French last name, but like didn't know how to pronounce it. But I just thought it was interesting and cool. Um, I know. I was with Sophie Sucre. Yeah, and a lot of people <laughs> have, have pronounced it correctly. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's how my name should sound. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, uh, I learned it as Sophie Sucre, so that's how I'm going to say it. But I've definitely had like French Canadians, French speaking people, like all the people who actually speak French who've been like, oh, Sophie Sucre. Okay, nice to meet you. And I'm like, yes, that's correct. That would be me, yes. Mm -hmm. that, that would be me. <laughs> um, but it's amazing, you know, and I am so grateful for the time that I had um, in Peekaboo Review, especially, oh God, especially for the time spent um, just getting to grow up alongside all of my troop mates. You know, um, I was I was performing with people who were some of the most amazing singers and actors and performers. Um, definitely influenced me both in and outside of the performance style of burlesque, um, just in terms of like. You talk about do it yourself, like seeing people like create whole ass props from like shit around the house that like look yeah. amazing from stage, you know, like people creating whole, like I learned how to sew, I learned how to um, really craft and create things like until I had the ability to pay for someone to do it. Like I really did learn those things from the ground up because of my time in that troop. So incredibly grateful nice. for that. Um, and everything that I've learned from them continues to be a part of how I teach and how I, you know, engage with the art form when I am engaging with it. So, I love so much, it. so much appreciation to them. There was a solo that you did mm. that, uh, it was just you and, and, and the drummers mm -hmm. and it was so beautiful, you mm. know, and it's like, this was not, it transcended burlesque. It was like, it was full on performance art. It was fabulous. You, you know what I'm talking about. I do, I do. You're talking about my solo drums and go-go, which was like, yes. first, that was my first like Sophie Sucre number, you know? Really? Like, um, so I had tried to create my first solo and it just, it didn't go well. Like I was, I was being too much of a dancer about it. I was trying to make this very like lyrical, emotive, very depressing, emo, but sexy, <laughs> gorgeous number. And I ran it for the truth. And the director at the time when I was done, she looked at me and she was like, are you comfortable? And I was like, no. She was like, it's really, it's really evident. Like don't put something on stage that you're not comfortable with. Even if it's like, you're comfortable with the idea, but like you yourself haven't connected to like, what it is that makes you feel good or powerful or sexy or all the things that should be coming up when you're performing, particularly burlesque, right? Like, um, and it really made me have to like sit and think about like, how did I want to approach it? Because up until that point, I was in all the group numbers and I was being handed choreography and being told what to do and already being given like my, in, like my um, intention and all of that. So I hadn't really like thought about like from the creation standpoint, like what is my reasoning for it? And Joey Martini, who was one of the hosts at the time, mm -hmm. he is a huge like vintage head when it comes to like music and especially like older, more vintage styles of, of performance art of music, especially coming from like the from vaudeville and from theater, um, that era of, of performance style. And he turned me on to the song Drums A Go-Go, which um, I forget where it comes from, but it's definitely like a 19... 
1940s or 1950s like orchestral like drumming like the kind of thing you would hear in like a big band and what yeah, was very Jean Krupa yeah and what was really yeah. exciting for me is that it it immediately made me think of samba, which is something that I grew up doing. Uh, my family's from South America. I am Caribbean. I'm from the, I'm from Guyana, South America. But like social dance, particularly samba and types of and dancing to like soca music was something I grew up doing my whole life. So it was very easy for me to like have an entry point that came very much from like me, and that right. helped me etch away into like how do I make this performative and fun um the director at the time Lulu Lollipop had an old costume that she wasn't using and that ended up becoming the costume that I would use and having and it was like a it's like a fringe shimmy what we call a shimmy belt and then like you take that off and there's like some fringe on the bra and fringe on the thong that I would like pull off in pieces and then I would eventually like get down to just like a, a g-string and my pasties and my pasties were tassels and um, I did not know at the time that I was creating it that there is a history of black dancing bodies doing something called shake dance, which yes. was, um, you know, when burlesque was ha when burlesque was, was going towards its prime in like the 30s, 40s and 50s. Black folks who were being segregated from performing burlesque in white spaces were performing burlesque in black spaces. And when they weren't comfortable with the burlesque, they would do shake dance, which is essentially still a little bit of striptease. They may lose a top layer or a bottom layer, but they're covered or wearing a lot of fringe because they would shake and they would bring in elements of like soft shoe and like different types of like jive and different types and like almost like a predecessor to tap. Um, but but very lyrical, very emotive, and they're dancing and they're shaking. And so like shake dance, a lot of dancers were known as shake dancers before they were considered burlesque dancers or before they moved into the realm of burlesque. And I am standing on the shoulders of all of these ancestors who used to do it and had no clue that that's what I was tapping into at the time of creating that act. So um, it was really amazing to start to dive into my burlesque history, particularly my black burlesque history, only to learn that I was not only not reinventing the wheel, but very much like connecting to something that was more like blood memory, like ancestral memory in terms of being able to like conjure that within myself. So, and I love that that number is a number that people like remember me for because that was like 13 years ago, Charles. And like people still remember that and think about that. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, I, I think it's something that if, and when I come back to burlesque, it is something that I want to remount, but I want to make it longer because it's only like two minutes and 30 seconds. Right. And I remember going, well, that could have been longer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually a performer named Calamity Chang, who's based out of New York, an amazing, amazing uh, Chinese American performer who is so gorgeous and has an entire platform that she manages. She's also one of the producers of the Asian Burlesque Festival in New York. She, I was perform, I got booked in one of her shows in New York when I had just started doing burlesque. And it was like one of my first times performing outside of Peekaboo. And I had done like a set and I think Drums of Go-Go was one of the set. And she was like, you really could do like much longer acts. And I was like, yeah, I just, I don't know if I'd know how to fill it. And she was like, after what I just saw you do, like there's no reason you can't fill something that's three to four minutes. And she was like, and quite honestly, like the audience needs more time with you. Like they need to be able to like have time to take in what they're seeing and go with you somewhere. So like by the time you've just gotten their attention, you're already done with your act. And so she right. was the one that like really made me consider like 
not just like what I was doing, but like the time in which it took for me to really like tell the story or, or just give an experience. So really appreciative to her for that. Yeah, it totally felt like it was part of a larger thing as opposed to its mm-hmm. own. Way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a question for you. So, um, and this is only my knowledge of Philadelphia. The burlesque scene feels very tied to the drag scene. Like, why? Why do you think that is? Just because of the spaces that they occupy, or? I mean, I think it's a couple of things, right? I think if we're talking about specifically Philadelphia, I think drag and burlesque are happening in the same venues. And of course, there's going to be a cross-pollination in terms of artists influencing artists. I think drag and burlesque share certain commonalities. You know, it's a very... um, Burlesque at, at like its true definition is, is a parody of something, right? It's you mm. making a much bigger than life, a more opulent version, a more body gaudy version, a more um, amplified version. And I think drag has, has that as well. Um, I think that drag is influenced by burlesque from like the opulence, the glamour, the the costume creation, the showgirl archetype, the um, that sort of presentation, especially when it comes to like losing layers and like the art of like striptease, even if you're not going down to Pasty's energy string, even though that is something that some drag performers do, mm-hmm. in which case they're doing burlesque. And especially if they're like a drag performer, not lip syncing and stripping, like they're straight up doing burlesque just simply in their drag persona. And then I think, Burlesque is influenced by drag in that um, burlesquers have to really amp up their game. It's not, it's no longer just strip teasing, right? Like a lot of gimmicks, a lot of, um, a lot of acrobatic work, a lot of apparatus and prop work. I think, I think drag performers have really influenced burlesquers and how they choose to tell stories and how they do character development. And now that um, I think, folks are feeling more free to be themselves and to play with gender expression. How drag, I think, gave room for gender to be expressed in such a myriad of ways, I think burlesque is opening up to, because burlesque was a, was a really cishet normative um, right, yeah. kind of work, right? It derives from sex work. It comes out of the strip clubs into nightclubs um, and it was very much for the male gaze performed by cishet women bodies, right? Mm. Inside of patriarchy, inside of all of those things. But now since the resurgence in the nineties, I think drag has been really influential to burlesque in terms of gender expression and allowing for male bodies to enter the conversation, for non-binary bodies to enter the conversation, for bodies that don't necessarily um, fit the mold of European aesthetic standards to enter the conversation, for Black and Brown and Indigenous bodies to take up space in a way that they were always there, but now they're actually being highlighted, they're being amplified, they're being put in in news articles and in magazines like i just saw main attraction anders and a few other um performers in new york are in l magazine right now so like it's anders is a black burlesque performer who's been performing for years in new york who's also like a theater and dance person too so it's it's um i think they go hand i think they're very influential i think they're cousins at this point 
in terms. Yeah. I think they're artistic cousins. Yeah. Um, I think nationally, uh, because of entertainment, especially in like places like Vegas and in other spaces where you have really curated spaces for these types of performances, and in New York, um, they're the, the the production level and the production quality for drag and for burlesque are so amplified and lifted right now. Yep. Um, I'm just waiting for the day that there's a reality TV competition for a burlesque performer. Like who's the next burlesque star? Like when we get there, I think we will have like, and I'm, I'm not saying I want that, but I'm saying like, I think it's a better <laughs> time right, right, for right. someone somewhere God forbid, like, I don't know. I, I won't I won't even put a name out there just so I don't talk any shit into being. But like I just feel like there's a point where the next reality TV star is gonna be someone competing to like work in a, like a burlesque show and like they're gonna have to like go through the whole process and but the thing is is like we as a society still have a lot of Puritan values. And so, you know, you're still seeing stories about someone who's a teacher and who happens to do burlesque and someone finds out that they do burlesque and they lose their job or someone who works in the medical industry or someone who might be a therapist who doesn't want their clients to know that they do this. Like that's still a stigma for some people. And until those things are dealt with societally, like until we're able to really deal with why it is that we would rather inspect a child's genitals than be comfortable with you know, like the human form in all Tell of its it. beauty. Like yeah. until we can deal with that, like I don't, I don't really know. Outside of the the profitability of a capitalizing off of our bodies, like I don't really know. I don't know. I I I, I don't know what, how society is going to deal with that. Um, sure. But we also don't respect our sex workers, and we don't provide them with enough healthcare and enough, you know safety in work environments we don't provide them what they need at all to live sustainable lives so i can't i can't imagine um burlesque getting a step ahead of that like those are i think there's just so much societally that we need to deal with before we can move into those other things um but all that i to think say, until there's money in respecting women we might not see it sure and just respecting our marginalized communities in general, because right. those bodies intersect at so many different places um, and concerns, you know? So, uh, yeah, but all that tangent to say that I think burlesque <laughs> and Jag are definitely cousins because the art forms have so many similarities and draws and pulls of inspiration. Sure. Yeah, because I noticed, and this might just be starting from when I was paying attention, but, uh, you know, once uh, the the what we know of as the iteration of peekaboo review came out then i you know then you started seeing uh bodies of color and then you started seeing queer performers like openly queer performers and then that's when i started noticing like when there are shows and clubs that like are hosted by drag queens or are primarily drag shows then there will be one or two burlesque performers on the bill and i've noticed the progression and now it's like an even number of drag performers and burlesque performers. And now there's drag less. Right. And, and um, there's burlesque, you know, for the boys and like, it's, it's yeah. And I dig it. I dig it. I think everyone getting where you fit in, I think is where it's at. I often, I often um, say that I feel like 
at least for burlesque, it's one of the last like punk rock art forms in that there's no hierarchy. Like if you can get a costume together, you can get a piece of music and you can get someone to play it and you step on a stage. Once you've stepped on that stage and you've taken off that costume, you're considered a burlesque performer. So, you know, that being said, I think people understand that in order to do something and do it well, there's a bit of time and practice that goes behind the scenes of, of that period of time between wanting to do it and getting on stage and doing it but nonetheless like you don't need a degree you don't need to go to classes if you don't want to like you could get up there and do whatever the fuck you want and still be a burlesque performer so i think that um you know all that being said there's something about self-agency and there's something about um you know, making space for yourself. And I think that what you've seen in the in the blossoming of the community and industry that exists here in Philly is partly because there was definitely an influence, right, of the two art forms, but there was also something happening where folks who were coming into this performance way of doing things didn't have a space. So they made their own space, right? They yep. made their own show. They found their own stage and they opened the door and the windows for others like them to be able to have space and access. So I think about, you know, the troops that have come up since Peekaboo, you know, your um, your Spice Racks, your, um, mm-hmm. there's another, oh God, all of them are like going out of my head right now, but um, there's so many more. Uh, there's um, one of them that's coming to my to, to my head is not based in Philly. So I don't want to mistakenly and, and say the wrong thing. Um, but yeah, they, they exist and they are out there and they are incredibly diverse across gender, across body type, across race and ethnicity. And they matter because they are representing, you know, everyday folks who are experiencing and having lived experiences similar to them that they may not see themselves reflected back in a truth like Peekaboo Review, right? So yeah. it's important that they exist and it's, it's important that, that folks continue to create and build their own spaces and build relationships with these venues in Philadelphia so that we start to have places where we can know that we can always feel safe in going here and getting to see something that is representative of, of the colloquial us, right? Whoever that falls into that us for that particular representation. Um, and it's necessary. It's so important. Um, and I think, I think Peekaboo has always understood that like, we were never going to be everything. Like we couldn't, right. we couldn't represent everything. There's too much diversity and too much like diverse experiences out there. And so it is so important that all of the other troops and other solo performers get their time in their space. And I think that Philly is, you know, working towards really making interesting spaces for that. You know, you have Frankie Bradley's, you have Fabrica, you have Taboo, you have Voyeur, you have, you know, all of these spaces and and other places. Um, I mean, I used to perform at like Kung Fu Necktie and the L Bar, um, you know, in addition to like wonderful spaces like the Trocadero and TLA and stuff like that. So like, it's it's necessary. it's necessary that if if you feel like you are not represented, you then have to like find the space for yourself to do it. And I and I think that's what will continue to grow the industry and the community are folks who are like, uh, you forgot about me. Right. Let me rather than let you tell me, I'm gonna tell you how you can address me, how you can engage with me, how you can play in my spaces. And I think there's something really powerful about that. 
yeah, that's becoming a thing. You know, I can't get a seat at your table. I will build my own table. What? Right. <laughs> yes. And I hope, I, and, and my goal and my hope is that when we build our own tables, we build a connection point so that if time comes and coalition building can happen, we can connect with other tables. You know, like I'm, I am absolutely here for like, building your own shit for what you need, especially if, if there's a history of, of folks leaving out necessary things, especially for your care and your well-being, you know, to live and die well, as my friend McKinney would say. Um, but I also understand that, like, industries and communities can only continue to grow if they can adapt and change and evolve in coalition and collaboration with others, especially those who might be f- facing similar challenges um and so we always have to be prepared for that too you know for a little bit of connection and and resource sharing indeed (sighs) well danielle this has been a fabulous conversation thank you so much for having me and for for inviting me on i really of course this was exactly what I knew it was going to be. We this was everything. This was all of the things. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> so if we wanted to uh, you know, check you out and learn more about you, where could we go? Hmm. So I am still on Instagram as Sophie Sucre, but that is pretty much like Danielle and Sophie sort of like smashed together. So right. you can definitely find me on Instagram. I'm still currently teaching at the Philadelphia Burlesque Academy. So if you're curious about burlesque and maybe you don't want to be a performer, but you would like to take some classes and just get into like the fun of self-exploratory movement and sensual movement and mining your pleasure um, and your erotic power, then definitely consider taking a class at the Philadelphia Burlesque Academy. And that can be found at philadelphiaburlesqueacademy.com. Um, it also can be found on Instagram as Philadelphia Burlesque Academy and also on Facebook as Philadelphia Burlesque Academy. Um, and as Danielle, um, hopefully we'll pass, well, you know, we'll cross paths on like the subway or something or we'll <laughs> each other at the corner of 16th and Walnut. I don't know. But if I see you say hello, um, I would love to talk with you. Fabulous. And we are going to put uh, all of your information in the notes to this episode. Thank you, Danielle Karika, so much for sharing your time and energy with us today. You got it. Thank you, Charles. I so Thank appreciate you. it. It's lovely to talk with you. You too. This has been Dance Talk Radio, brought to you by PhiladelphiaDance.org, your one-stop spot for everything dance in Philly. If you are a dancer in Philly, or if you love a dancer in Philly, you should consider going to PhiladelphiaDance.org and clicking on the Become a Member button and take advantage of all the wonderful benefits that come from being a member of Dance in Philadelphia. Once again, I am your host, Charles Tyson Jr. You have a wonderful day.